You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. Bibles, if you don't mind, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you're a guest, a special welcome to you. We're in the middle of a, a series on this letter, Paul's first letter, at least the first letter, I got flies up here, the first letter um, that we have recorded for us, written to the Corinthian church. As you find 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're looking at verses 19 to 23 today. Um, I want to pray for us, but in the lead up, in the lead up to prayer, I want to I want to read a verse out of Jeremiah 6 uh, for us that I was reminded of yesterday. Uh, and I thought, this is so relevant. It was so good for me to hear it. But I thought, I want to bring it to the body uh, tomorrow. Um, and, and this is the prophet Jeremiah. This is the Lord speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. And, and this, is what, this is what it says. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look. And ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Um, the, the reason why I wanted to bring this verse to us is we, we live in distressing, distressing times. Um, I, I, I talk to you, you talk to me, we see stuff online, we see things on TV and it, our world seems so full of angst and anger and division and, and sometimes can seem very hopeless and we're looking for answers. And I know for the most part, most of you are coming in here today and you, 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 you walk with the Lord, you trust the Lord, but sometimes we can get distracted and we start looking for answers in different places and start looking for new things. And, and, and yet this counsel to us by the never-changing God is... Go back to the ancient paths. Go back, because our God has spoken to us. Go back to the things that I've said. Go back to those ancient things that I've given you and find rest for your souls in it. And I just think that there are so many in the church, not speaking of those outside of the church, where our souls are restless and, again, angst-filled, um, sometimes sensing hopelessness, and so my prayer, and I'll pray in just a moment, is that we would find rest by going back to what the Lord has given us and be reminded of his good things to us. Because a sad thing in, in this text, and I'm not teaching out of Jeremiah 6 today, so this is just prelim, doesn't count for my time, is that, is that in spite of the counsel from, from the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah, the next line says, we will not walk in it. And I think there are so many that have rejected the good things of God and said, we will not walk in those things. Um, and, uh, and again, I think we see the fruit of that today. And so let's pray together as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So, so Father, we are going to the things that you have inspired, uh, written down. You're, this is your word written um, to us that you've given the Apostle Paul uh, 2,000 years ago and now uh, you have given to us and will give to us today. Uh, still as relevant uh, still as good and right and true today as it was when it was first written. Um, so speak to us today by way of it, and may we, may we walk out of here, here with souls at rest, confident in, in the journey that uh, each of us is on in, uh, in great trust and assurance by, 
by way of the promises uh, that are found in, in your word. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, like I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're looking at a short text today, verses 19 to 23. Um, we're in a section of text, if you've been here for the last couple of Sundays in 1 Corinthians, where Paul has begun tackling the great big topic of Christian liberty. And it is a big topic. It's in fact a topic that he takes three, over three chapters to discuss. A couple of weeks ago in chapter 8, he began with a discussion under the topic of liberty talking about meat offered to idols, eating meat offered to idols. And last week in chapter nine, about the right, his right to be compensated for his ministry. Remember that? It was a right that he gave up, but he was, it was right for him to be paid. But in his liberty, he gave up his right to be compensated for his ministry to the Corinthians. And there were two reasons why Paul gave up his rights. The first, which we looked at last week, was for the sake of the gospel. That's how we ended last week. Today, and second, and we're going to spend our entire time in this, he gave up his right, secondly, for the sake of the lost. Like I said, a short text today, only five verses, and what I'd like to do is just go through them one verse at a time. So let's get the ball rolling by reading verse 19, and then we'll neat-nick it. Verse 19, Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Great verse. Uh, if you had to pick, if you were forced to pick just one verse that sums up the Christian life, you could do worse than verse 19. It's a great verse. It begins with Paul saying, I am free from all. Paul was. And so is anyone who is in Christ. Free from the penalty of sin, as we've talked about. Free from the power of sin. Free from having to observe the Old Testament civil and ceremonial laws. Also free to participate, as we've seen and as we will continue to see, to participate in things not expressly forbidden in the scriptures. Jesus said famously in John 8, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's the Christian life. We have been called to freedom. We have been freed to freed freedom. Free from the things that I just mentioned, but free from having to, to find your identity in things like your relationship status. You're free from that. You don't have to find your identity in that anymore. Or your education or your, or your job or your achievements or your looks or your kids or your portfolio or maybe unfair parental expectations, you're free from that. You're free from the world's definition of success. You're a child of God. You've been adopted by a father in heaven, you're a co-heir with Christ. The heavenlies are your inheritance. You've been set free from those things that can so easily entangle us. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That truth, received, heated, lived under, will set you free. That's the promise of Jesus. But in the context of the last couple of chapters, 
the immediate context of the last couple of chapters, Paul was also free from Jewish dietary restrictions. He could eat anything he wanted, even meat offered to idols, and he was also free to not eat meat offered to idols. He was free from financial dependence on the Corinthians, and he was also free to take their compensation. He was free from all. Yet he says, put your eyes back in verse 19, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. This too is the Christian life. Jesus said in Matthew 20, speaking to this, that whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Just as, or even as, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the Christian life. A servant of Jesus is to be a servant of Jesus' people. The Christian life is reserved for those who deny themselves, take up their uh, crosses, pick up their crosses daily and follow me, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. And and in in case you think this is just for Paul, reserved for Paul or a select few, just put your eyes over into chapter 11, first verse, same book, 1 Corinthians, where Paul says there, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul imitated Jesus and we are to follow that lead. And what was Paul's motivation for all of this? Meaning motivation free from all, but wanting to be a servant, choosing to be a servant of all. Well, back in chapter chapter nine, verse 19, he answers that I might win more of them. That's his motivation. He does it for the sake of the lost, which is the call of the Christian life too. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and we as his disciples are to follow his lead. We are to be witnesses of Jesus and disciple makers of Jesus. Paul made himself a servant of all so that some of them might be saved. Now what he does next in verse 20 is he gets more specific about the people groups uh, he is talking about in this inclusion of all. Take a look at verse 20. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Where am I? I've lost, there I am. This verse, if you know anything about Paul, could be confusing. Because what nationality is Paul? He was Jewish. He was actually a Hebrew of Hebrews, he says in Philippians 3. He actually even takes it further and he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Great tribe. He was a Jew's Jew, upper crust, highfalutin. Not like me, lowfalutin, highfalutin. (laughs) And yet, in spite of that realization, that reality that he he is Jewish, he says in verse 20 that he became as a Jew. 
in order to, to win Jews. And, and therefore, if we put all of this together, he's not saying that he's becoming a citizen of Israel to reach Israelites. He's saying that he's putting himself under Jewish religious law to reach Jewish religious people. But there's something else hinted at here that's so beautiful. And what is hinted at here beautifully is that we get a sense of Paul's understanding that he is a new creation in Christ. That he doesn't see himself first <coughs> as a Hebrew of Hebrews, but a citizen of a new kingdom where there is no Jew or Greek. In fact, if you go to Philippians 3 and you see this biography of Paul where he used to find his identity in, Hebrew of Hebrews, tribe of Benjamin, blameless as according to the law, he was circumcised on the eighth day, he, he gives this big long list and then he says, and then I met Jesus. And all of those things that I found my identity in then, rubbish. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm a, a child of God. He's free from all of that. And yet, going back to our verse, to win Jews, he became as a Jew, which means what? Well, it means that he and those with him did all they could not to hinder Jewish people from hearing the gospel. When he ate with them, he would have only eaten what they felt free to eat. When he entered a, a new city, he reasoned with the Jewish people in their synagogues. When Timothy, talk about taking one for the team, when Timothy, whose father was a Greek, joined his team, Paul had him circumcised. Because of the Jews, we read in Acts 16, verse 3. In Acts 18, Paul made a Nazarite vow to express thanks to God for his deliverance. In Acts 21, he joined four Nazarites in their purification rites. And he paid their expenses for their sacrificial offerings. Why? Out of love. In the same way that Timothy, before God, didn't need to be circumcised, he was circumcised. He followed the law so nothing would get in the way of the gospel. He became as a Jew in order to win Jews. He put himself under the law while not being under the law. Uh, over the years... Uh, I've had a chance to go to India about five or six times, and I've had the opportunity to speak in a variety of churches there. Most people who make up Christian churches, at least in the, in the north, in the Punjab, have been converted to Christianity from Hinduism, which is the national religion, and Sikhism, which is quite popular in the north. If you uh, have a conversation with a, a, an Indian here in Canada, they most often, 99%, would be coming from the north, from the Punjab, would be observers of Sikhism. Uh, in fact, outside of India, the two greatest population groups of Sikhs are in London and in Vancouver, in the area. In their previous worship experience, before coming to Christ, out of veneration for their worship spaces, they don't wear shoes indoors. Ezra talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And that practice has moved on over to their Christian places of worship. And it doesn't matter where you meet. I mean, I've spoken to churches in backyards, decks off homes, doesn't matter. Whenever people come in, they take off their shoes. Women, women wear head coverings as well. When I've preached there, I've always preached shoeless. If I've gone with a team, the women wear head coverings. 
and happily so for the sake of the gospel. And the lost, because that's what love does. Love limits itself to bring gospel liberation to others. And that was an easy thing. That's a small example. Taking your shoes off. I mean, that's a small thing. I wouldn't get up in front and go, look, man, this is just a building. I'm wearing my shoes, doggone it. I don't have to take my shoes off. I don't do that. Women cover their heads, even though they feel free not to, for the sake of the gospel. Small thing, out of love. That's what love does. Love limits itself to bring gospel liberation to others. The question is, do we have that kind of heart for people here? Do we have that burden? Do we love our neighbors in Vancouver enough that we are willing to make ourselves servants of them all? Something to chew on? Something to talk about in our See Jesus week. Paul continues in verse 21. To those outside the law, I became, became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. There is a debate over this verse. And the debate over it is... It comes because why doesn't Paul simply write Gentiles here? Uh, he writes of Jews in the previous verse. It would make sense. He goes from Jews first, right? Salvation to the Jews first. And then he doesn't write Gentiles here. Instead, he writes of those outside the law. Why? Well, perhaps he's not only referring to Gentiles here, but Jewish people too who weren't observant of the law. Maybe that's why. Uh, Maybe, it's just not clear. But what is clear is that he wants this group outside of the law, one for Jesus. And what is also clear is what you see in the parentheses. Did you notice the parentheses in verse 21? The, the parentheses, he says in them, he's not outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He's very clear about that. What is the law of Christ? Well, the answer is love. The law of Christ is love. Love for God and love for others. And Paul says, I'm always under the law of Christ. In Romans, listen to what he says in Romans 13. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Doesn't commit adultery against a neighbor. Doesn't steal from a neighbor. Doesn't murder a neighbor. Therefore, love, the law of Christ, is the fulfilling of the law. Paul writes elsewhere in Galatians 6 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ. You see, at Midtown, as Christians, we are constrained. We have been saved to love. Our, our debt, our penalty of debt removed, another debt placed on us. Love. I'm out, out from under that law. And the sins that it, that it revealed and the things that I've done, I'm outside of that, but I'm under this. I have a debt 
to others. I have a debt to God to love both. And therefore, no saying my rights trump yours. No saying who cares about them. No saying that's their issue, not mine. To answer Cain's question, going all the way back to Genesis 4, the answer is yes, we are our brother's keepers. And anytime we choose not to love in this way, we default on our debt. So what does this look like in Paul's life with this group of people? Well, when Paul went to someone's house not under the law, he ate whatever was placed before him. When he sent Titus to Crete, he didn't instruct him to be circumcised. When Paul got kicked out of the synagogue, he planted a church in a Gentile's house. To show that the gospel was for all, he brought four Gentile Christians uh, Christians to Jerusalem to introduce them to the church there. To show those outside the law, moved by love, he became as one outside the law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I I might save some. Who are the weak? Like, why does Paul have this third group? It seems like he's speaking about non-Christians, right? Verse 22, because he talks about winning them and he talks about saving them. So it sounds like salvation. So he's talking about non-Christians, obviously. But the question I have is, why would Paul bring up a third group of non-Christians after talking about Jewish non-Christians and talking about Gentile non-Christians already? Adding more confusion to this is that in Romans 14 and 15, Paul refers to weak Christians. Weak in what way? Well, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 14 of Romans, weak in faith. But their weakness, where does their weakness show up? If you know anything about that passage, their weakness doesn't show up in unbelief. They're followers of Christ. Their weakness shows up in not grasping something about the gospel that didn't allow them to eat, meat, or drink, or break from Sabbath traditions. That's where their weakness shows up. Paul sums up his feelings in the very first verse of chapter 15 of Romans when writing, we who are strong have an obligation to bear, there's Galatians 6.2 again, to bear with the failings of the weak. So they're failing in something. They're not getting something. They're not grasping it. That's how Paul defines their weakness. We who are strong, meaning we understand something that they don't get, we have an obligation to them. To bear with the weak and not please ourselves. He writes elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brothers, sisters, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. So if that's the case, that Paul here is referring to the weak in faith and not merely non-believers, then he isn't trying to win them to Christ 
but to a greater understanding of their freedom in Christ. But there's actually a possibility, a third possibility that Paul is referring to another group altogether. What group would that be? Well, do you remember how this letter started back in chapter one? Let me remind you, this is what Paul says in chapter one. For consider your calling, brothers, sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, this is obviously talking about non-Christians in the city of Corinth who have come to salvation in Christ and have made up the core of the Corinthian church. But there, please understand something. Their weakness doesn't refer to their spiritual condition or weakness of faith, like Romans 14 and 15, but to their socioeconomic position. They were lowly, they were weak, according to worldly standards, from a, a worldly perspective. And what Paul says is God chose them. God chose you, and he saved them. So what do we have? Class, we have three options. All have support biblically. Paul could be talking about non-Christians, or that he's talking about people who are weak in faith, or talking about non-Christians who have come to Christ, but they've been saved from, or saved out of, or saved in spite of their socioeconomic positions. There's three options. All have biblical support. So where do I land? I think it could be all three. Because all three work. Now, do I think Paul had in mind all three when he wrote this verse? No. But he talks about weakness in these three ways in all of his letters. And therefore, if the weak refers to all non-Christians, then Paul is simply emphasizing that he did everything to reach them for Jesus. And if it refers to the weak in faith, then as we go back to that text in Romans 15, Paul didn't hammer them over their failings and nor did he force them to act against their consciences and partake in what they didn't feel that they could because that would be sin for them. He bore with them. And if the weak refers to the lower classes, then my guess is that Paul talked about Jesus as much in the marketplace as he did in the synagogues. Do you remember from last week um, that I said the Corinthians questioned Paul's apostleship because he was a tent maker? Remember that? that he did the work of a slave. Manual labor to the Corinthian people was reserved for slaves. That, that the fact that he was a tent maker had no appeal to the cultural elite. Remember that? But do you know who it would have appealed to? The slave. And, and the despised. And, and the weak it would have had great appeal to them. But this isn't a surprise, really. Because the Christian faith on this side of the cross has existed for 2,000 years, 
And in spite of what you may have heard, Christianity around the world has never been stronger. The trajectory, traject, tra trajectory in the West is not good, but never stronger worldwide. The mustard seed that was planted 2,000 years ago is growing into the largest of plants as Jesus said his kingdom would. Jesus is building his church and the gates of hell are not standing against it. This may be a surprise to you, at least some of you, but the, the one people group, the Christian faith, percentage-wise, has never made great inroads with is the rich. Christianity, historically and globally, is not a religion of the rich. Why? For it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the rich, in their abundance, have no need for a savior. Because riches make us proud. And God only gives grace to the humble. Where, where Christianity has flourished and is flourishing is with those the world looks down upon. It flourishes with the persecuted in China, with the lower castes in India, with the destitute in Africa, with the poor in Central and South America. In the early church, it flourished with slaves. It, it flourished with the poor and it flourished with women in great numbers. It's a, it's a religion for the weak and the lowly and the despised. It, it, it doesn't flourish with the rich and the prosperous and those who feel they have no need of anything, not recognizing that they are poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. Paul sums things up in our text in verse 23, but I want to pick things up halfway through verse 22 and read to the end. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Two last comments as I, as I begin wrapping up. One, winning people by all means doesn't mean that we participate in sin to win sinners. That's not what Paul means by all means. It, it, it means we go to the party and we go to the parties, but we change the party. The party doesn't change us. And two, if you're getting the sense that becoming all things to all people to win some is messy <laughs> and a challenge, you're right. There's stops and starts, there's bumps along the way, it sometimes can be confusing. That's why you need to go to your CG this week and wrestle with it together. But here's the thing, we have no option but to enter the messiness and the difficulty of this and not do what the church has too often done over the last 2,000 years. Two major mistakes the church has done historically. One is sync up with the world and allow the gospel to be watered down in a, a desire to befriend the culture. So syncretism. You know when you sync your phone to your computer, they become the same. 
So the church has done that. Church does it all the time. Sinking, conforming, instead of transforming. Or on the flip side, abandon the world because the world's icky and gross. Abandon the world, live in a Christian bubble, buy a commune, only shop if there's a fish symbol, (laughs) right? On the signage, huddling, hiding. That's not our call either. That's called sectarianism. You become a sect to yourself. Instead, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to take the never-changing gospel that has been delivered once for all to us, and we are to take it into an always-changing world. And it's messy, and Jesus said, I'm sending you to the wolves. That's our call. And sometimes we're going to smell like life, and sometimes we're going to smell like death. We can expect both responses. That's called contextualization. Take the gospel, understanding the context, and bringing that gospel into it. This has implications to world missions for a short time or a lifetime. What does it look like when I go to another country, another nation, another people group? This has implications for church planting. A church plant on commercial drive should look different than a church that exists in Abbotsford. Right? Out at UBC, probably different than White Rock. Because the demographic is different. The people's background is different. The ages are different. All of those things are different. It, It needs to understand the people group that it's going into. But this also has implications for our neighbors. Because the nations have come, as we know, to this city. We live, exist here in this building close by to one of the largest Sikh temples in the country. These are our neighbors. They live across, they, they live across the backyard. We don't have to go across to another, another nation. So implications all around. Paul wraps up our text by sharing that he is crystal clear in his motivation. Did you see that? He exists to serve God by serving the mission he has been given. To win as many many as possible to faith in Jesus. He does it all for the sake of the gospel and he does it all for the sake of those he hopes to win. In this, what he does is he places greater value on this mission than on any claim to his personal rights and freedoms. Again, do we have the same heart? Do I have the same heart? Do you have the same heart? Those sacrifices are costly. But as he says, they are worth the benefits. And one of those benefits is sharing in the blessings of the gospel with those who believe. More on that next week. In a text that I'm so excited to teach, I wish I could just teach it this afternoon. But I gotta close. And as I close and we respond, I wanna take you back to that statement um, of Paul Uh, In 1 Corinthians 11.1, where he said, follow my example as I follow Christ. Jesus is the ultimate example of this, isn't he? Jesus gave up what was rightfully his for our sake. While here, 
Jesus was without sin, yet he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus ate with Pharisees. Jesus ate with prostitutes. Jesus ate with tax collectors. Jesus was accused by the Pharisees of being friends with sinners. While also meeting with Pharisees like Nicodemus in the cover of night. To answer his questions. Jesus paid taxes to Caesar. And he rendered to God what is God. God's. Jesus, to the shock of his disciples drank water offered to him by a Samaritan woman with quite the reputation. Jesus went through Samaria when most Jewish people didn't. And he commissioned us to go to the ends of, of the earth while saying that we need to begin in Jerusalem. When Jesus was killed, he was killed because the religious hated him and he was killed because the politicians hated him too. He was killed by Jewish people and he was killed by Gentiles. Jesus' ministry was funded by women. Jesus' ministry was robbed by a disciple. Jesus invited the children to come to him. On the way to the cross or to the top of the mount with the cross, Jesus stumbled and he was helped to carry his cross by a black man from Northern Africa. His birth was announced to lowly shepherds first, but it was Asian men from the Orient men of renown who also came to worship him. Upon his death, it was a Roman officer who first declared, truly, this is the Son of God. It was a rich Jew who gave Jesus his grave, and it was a poor widow who Jesus said gave the most. After his resurrection, it was women who came he came to first and then the disciples thereafter. And because of all of this, Midtown, in the kingdom to come, in a number too high to count, people from every tribe, language, and nation will cry out in a loud voice together, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, Midtown, Jesus came for all people. Jesus gave up his liberty and he gave up his rights for all people. Jews and Greeks, male and female, weak and strong, rich and poor, old and young, Asian, African, European, South American. Any South Americans here? And even us good-for-nothings from the West. All people. We all have the same blood coursing through our veins, the blood of Jesus. Jesus is the savior of all, and we in love and in liberty need to be servants of all, 
so as many of the all come to Jesus. No options. Would you rise as I pray? And as I pray, I'm gonna pray the, almost the exact same prayer I prayed last week because the only way the penny drops in this for us, for me, for you, individually and corporately, is that our love for God increases, our love for the gospel increases, and our burden for the lost increases. It's the only way. Because you can't fake this. Not for long anyways. So let me pray for that for all of us. Join me in praying. Father, so we come before you and ask that our love for you, your son, the gospel, would deepen, would deepen, increase our love, stir our affections for you and the beautiful gospel of Jesus. Stir our affections, stir our convictions as well. That, that we would realize in deeper ways, more passionate ways, that there is only one named, uh, name under heaven by which men and women are saved, and it is the gospel of Jesus that is the power of God for salvation, for the Jew first and then the Gentile. And, and Father, please, by way of your Holy Spirit in us, increase my, our burden for the lost so that we find it easy to become a servant of all. That in love and joy, would become, we would become a servant of all. Help us, and also help us, give us wisdom and clarity. How does this get fleshed out in Vancouver in 2023? What does it look like? This is obviously important. What does it look like? Help us. I pray for our CG leaders this week. I pray for those groups as they meet, as they wrestle through this. Give them clarity, help, help them, give them direction. We want to be doers of your word. So help us in that, I pray. I pray for these things all in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.